0: Um, great to be here with you guys. My name is Paul Buckley, and I'm a lead pastor here. And we're so glad, um, if you're a visitor, that you, you're with us. We pray God's blessing on you. Uh, we are people who have been created by God, uh, by his word, uh, and we live by his word. And so we take time in our worship time to focus uh, specifically on his word. And we are doing a series in the book of Romans. So we'll be in chapter 15 title the message is Unity and Hope. Uh, has anyone here visited the Shaker Village in Canterbury, New Hampshire? Anyone been there? A of you guys? Great. Uh, it's uh, worth the trip. It's about 20 minutes north of Concord, New Hampshire. And um, the Shakers, if you don't know, they're a group that uh, has mostly died out. There's only two left in, uh, in Maine, I think, maybe three, two or three. But this group got started in the 1800s and they sought to establish a a utopia of, of sorts on earth, a kind of um, quasi-Christian utopia. And they were committed to celibacy and communal living. Um, and they would often shake during the religious services when they felt like God was speaking to them, and that's where they got the name Shakers. I don't think they call themselves that. Um, these communities actually were model communities in many ways of charity and industry, cleanliness, and technological innovation. Uh, They not only invented the famous shaker chairs and bureaus, which are highly valued today if you have an an original, but they're also credited with inventing the modern clothespin, automatic clothes washing, industrial circular saws, condensed milk, and many other things. There is an aspect, if you've been there, and if you know the history, there's an aspect of it that's very appealing, uh, and that is that they sought to to make the, the future hope of heaven, their, their version of that at least, a present reality in a real way. And that's the appealing part, to see actually that this is, this is a community that in some ways looks a little bit like heaven. And that has been a, a continual uh, appeal in our culture over, over time. The problem, the drawbacks with the, shakes, the sh- uh, shakers, is that um, they had an, a very aberrant view of Jesus. Uh, they believed that their founder was kind of a second coming of Jesus. Uh, they didn't quite believe, uh, they didn't believe the truth of Jesus as the pre-incarnate eternal son taken on flesh. That's very serious. Uh, and also their approach to bringing heaven to earth was something beyond what the scripture calls. Their hope of of bringing heaven to earth, of kind of experiencing the hope of heaven now was was built around this idea of a semi-secluded celibate community. And God's plan for this actually is very clear in scripture. It's called the local church. The local church is to be a taste of heaven. The local church is to be that place actually where in some way we experience the hope of heaven now. That the hope isn't just in the future, but actually there's a taste of it, an experience of it now. There's a, a, an assurance of that hope through the experience of the local church. That's the truth that's in our passage today. That's the truth that's in Scripture. That's the truth that's for us here at King of Grace and every local church and really the entire church. God calls us to a profound unity together in Christ that makes our hope a reality in significant ways. That's the bottom line truth we'll draw from this passage. Let's pray and ask God to help us see these things, uh, to encounter him through his word, and be changed and to learn how to live in these truths that he's given us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you um, for the ways we see your goodness in the kingdom um, and how you've made us, Lord. But Lord, we thank you that you've called us as a local church and all local churches to live by your word and, and to experience something that is profound and heavenly. And I thank you for the truths that are here in Romans 15. Help me Lord to teach clearly and I pray Lord as we go through this that we would encounter you and we would hear from you. We would hear from you not just in the idea that's here but the call personally to each of us that you have. So Lord visit us, empower, give us fresh faith hope, and love to believe and walk in your ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For, Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God For his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Again, this message is about unity and hope. The core truth we see here is that we are called to follow Christ in true unity that strengthens strengthens and demonstrates our hope. Christ-centered unity strengthens our hope. And there are three things I want to look at about unity connected to these themes. First, unity means death and life to us. Second, unity means centering on Christ. And third, unity means a stronger hope. So let's dig in. Paul starts with, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We've been seeing this theme in chapters 14 and now in 15. This reality of the weak and the strong. And we've learned that in Rome, this particular uh, example of this for them was the, that there were differences among the people in that church those that came from a Jewish background those that came from a non-Jewish or a Gentile background and having discovered the truths of Christ together they were, they were making their way and growing in the truth of the gospel and the grace and those who came from a Jewish background for many of them they were used to uh, refraining from things that were prohibited that were actually a legitimate part of the expression of their love to God under the Mosaic Covenant the old, the old covenant we call it. It's the covenant of God's people uh, before Christ came to fulfill it and, and to lead us into the new covenant. And they were used to living under that covenant and not uh, engaging and eating certain things and doing certain things that were prohibited as part of your faith and love and devotion to God. But Christ has come to fulfill those things and, and he's declared himself that all things are clean, um, that there's no longer any unclean and clean and how they would have uh, understood things under the Mosaic Covenant. And yet for many of them, it was difficult to make that transition. Even though they believed the truth of the grace of Christ, it was hard to start eating things that they had been prohibited from eating, whether that those things were non-kosher sort of things, as we call them, or even food that had been sacrificed to idols, and their understanding of what that meant and how that affected things. Those things led them to, to struggle with this idea. And those are the weak that Paul speaks of. He says, we who are strong, Paul actually uh, did not feel that weakness and was free. And he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. It's interesting, these are the failings of the weak. Uh, the weak have certain limitations, the inabilities here. It's not necessarily a, a failing in terms of, it isn't a moral failing. Um, it's a failing that has to do just with their, their inability. And they're not able to to be free in this. And and this truth that we've seen, uh, though we may not have this particular situation going on for us now, it illustrates a principle that is important to get, that there are certain truths that are less important. There are certain issues that are less important than others. There are non-essential issues. doesn't mean they're unimportant, so don't hear that. But they're less important than the truth Of our life in Christ the truth of our forgiveness the truth of the unity of the body called together in Christ to truly love one another there are things in a category that they're not important enough to to cause controversy and even ruin someone's faith because they can misunderstand how those things fit in when it comes to matters of conscience especially so we don't have the particulars but we do have other particulars that illustrate this principle Whether or not to get vaccinated against COVID is a modern, recent example, a poignant one for many of us. Whether or not to drink alcohol or smoke tobacco, whether to listen to certain music or watch certain movies or not, whether to homeschool our kids or not, whether to vote for a particular political candidate or another one. These are examples of this same sort of... uh, truth the same sort of principle that we can differ on these things not that there aren't important things to talk about with those things but, but they're not so important that we should put them alongside the importance of Christ crucified and risen the importance of the unity of the body in Christ to image him in truth and love we don't elevate these lesser things to become essential things that's, I hope that's clear through all this Paul helps us understand. The Word of God helps us understand how to walk these things out. I'm not going to talk much more about those particulars. We last message and the previous messages on this, we dug into that more. What I want to talk about here is what Paul is emphasizing in this section, which is a little different. He's kind of going deeper into this issue. and He wants us to help, help us understand these things. And One of the things that he's going deeper into here is our regard for one another, how we think about one another. He says the strong, we who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We have an obligation. We owe something. That's the sense there. We ought to do something. There's a burden given us. We are to bear with the failings of the weak. We're to take on a burden for them. That's what he's saying. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We're to bear a burden." We're to deal with this reality of the differences among us, and being strong or weak, by taking on obligations ourselves, not by saying it's all on them. That's what he's saying. I hope that's clear. And by the way, it's important to recognize that this idea of the strong and the weak doesn't just apply to matters of conscience and just matters of, of uh, truths, essential versus non-essential truths, but actually has to do with everything about us. The reality is we are all strong in certain ways and weak in certain ways. And the reality is we all have limitations. We all have certain preferences. We all are made certain ways. We all have certain personalities. We all have certain experiences and perspectives, and we all differ on those things. And we are all going to be strong in certain ways and weak in others. And so this principle is really important to extend to really every way that we relate to each other. And it's a very different approach than what we might do naturally, what the world or our culture might do at times. It says that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weakness of the weak, the limitations of the weak. And so in the church, we have an obligation to bear the burdens of dealing with people who are different than us. That's what it's being said here. We are to bear a burden. We are to seek, it says, not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So instead of just being comfortable in how you like to do things, what your preferences might be, how you roll, we are actually to seek to please others, not ourselves. Now, there's qualifiers in how we do that, right? It's not please them however they want to please them. It's please them for their good to build them up. And so there's some degree of discernment and so forth. But nevertheless, it's a call for us to change our orientation in relationships from what I can get versus what I can give. This is really important. We're called to this in Christ. We're called to this in the church, We're called to this because this is what creates unity. We're called to this because this is what creates a place that looks a bit like heaven. We're called to this because this is what creates a hope that isn't just an ideal for the future, but a present reality that people, we, can experience and be strengthened in. That outsiders can come in and see there's something different here. It all hinges on this orientation that we don't orient towards the weak or the ones who are different in terms of let's stay away from them. But instead, how can I be a blessing? How can I not live to please myself with how I approach church and relationships? And this really goes for all relationships as those who follow Christ. But how can I live to please them? And why is it that this is so easy to do when it comes to pleasing ourselves? It's just so easy to live to please ourselves. We don't even have to think about it. We just do it. And yet when we hear a message like this, we're like, oh, no. This isn't what I want to hear this Sunday. I have to do this for others? It feels like such a burden and so difficult. And and yet we expect it to come our way though, right? Why don't people just bear with me a little better than they do? Why can't they bear with my weakness? Why can't they understand me? And, and so we expect it to flow our way. We expect people to cover our, our weaknesses and, and our, you know, our sins. That are, are, All sins are serious, but there are very harmful sins. Uh, and the non-harmful ones, we are to cover. The love, the love of Christ covers over many sins, right? Love covers over a multitude of sins. And we expect that towards us, right? But we don't, when it goes the other way, we tend to think, ah, why do I have to put up with I, I say this too much from the pulpit and the men and maybe I just need to change but my driving always illustrates my sinfulness to me again and again and, and I don't know if you've ever felt this way you get angry at people who don't let you out right like come on it's always I've been sitting here and you like and the traffic's going slow why not just make a gap and let me out and then we don't do it at least I don't do it myself because I drive by like ah, oh, yeah I gotta get to work I gotta get to this place and the next guy will let them out It's the same attitude, right, in driving that we often have here, that that we expect people to to be leaning in towards us, to be gracious towards us, and yet we find it hard to go the other way. God wants us to live very differently. He calls us to do this. He calls us to orient ourselves this way, and, and we must recognize that this means death to ourselves. There's no way around it, and I wouldn't be telling you the truth or helping you if I told you there's some secret way to get around having to die to your own preferences and what pleases you. There isn't. This call here is good and right, right? We expect it to come our way, so we must also give it the other way. We must live according to this, right? Do unto others as you have them do unto you. The Golden rule makes sense. Like, if I expect it to come my way, then of course I have to be the giver of this as well and there's no way around it but by dying to what we would prefer to do what pleases us most and so the call is here you can't wiggle out of it we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up there's a call here for us to die and there's no other way to create the sort of unity and love the Lord wants to work in our lives. Now hang in there. I know this is a hard word. We're going to get to more. But you need to up front understand the call here is your death. In the sense of putting yourself not first, but second or third or last. To love others as yourself. To love the Lord with all your being. To live to please your neighbor. To build them up for their good. This is a reality. This is the pathway to godliness. This is the pathway to life, actually. This is the pathway to true joy and true pleasure, heavenly, spiritual, eternal pleasure. There's reward here, certainly. But it's a pathway of death, dying first to self, and living for others, living for the Lord. And the story, the Band of Brothers, HBO series and, and the book as well, based on the true story of the Easy Company of 101st Airborne in World War II. There's this interaction that goes on between Private Blythe and Lieutenant Spears at the time. And it's during a battle shortly after D-Day in Carenton. And Private Blythe is overwhelmed with fear. He's, he's a special forces. He's an airborne-trained uh, soldier. But nevertheless, he's overwhelmed with fear in the battle as, as The things go on all around him. He's cowering in a foxhole. He had done it before. And there's this interaction he has with Lieutenant Spears. And Spears says to Blythe, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think that there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier's supposed to function. My brothers and sisters, the same is true for us we have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live. If you believe in Christ, you are so connected to him and that will be my next point that you actually have died. And we must live in that reality if we're going to function as he calls us to. We must face our death in Christ and live in the life he has. Again, that will be next point. But we must die. We must not live to please ourselves, but to please others. This is essential for unity. This is essential for hope to be made a reality. This is essential for God to be glorified through his church. Failing to see this will only lead to trouble, complaining, bitterness, impatience, and division. And so the first step is just to simply realize the inevitable reality of being called to die and so the question is where do you need to adjust your expectations what relationships are you coming into thinking it's all about me getting what I want now don't hear what I'm not saying there's a mutuality in a healthy relationship but there needs to be for us this fundamental orientation that it's not about what I get it's about giving it's about living to bless others this is what it means to be made in the image of Christ actually So what relationship, marriage, family, church, elsewhere? Where are you refusing to die and therefore failing to love? Second point, good news. (laughs) Unity means centering on Christ. So Paul calls us to this behavior, this belief in verses 1 and 2. And then he goes to Christ. And that's where we need to go. We need to recognize that it's centering on Christ. That gives us the power to do this. Don't try this on your own. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need his help. And so Paul knows this. And so in the rest of the section, he's going to point to Christ throughout. And so we see it right away, right? Verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written... The reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. He goes to Christ and the example of Christ. And this is a quote from Psalm 69. He's going to quote from a number of Old Testament uh, quotations that speak of Christ. These are promises and truths taught about Christ long before he lived. So Psalm 69 was written probably a thousand years before Christ by King David. But it is about Christ. And it teaches us that Christ lived to please others. Christ didn't live to please himself as the prime way that he lived. He lived to please others. He lived to please his Father. He lived to please people. To bless them. He lived to be uh, one who loves God and loves others. And so in that role, in, in his unique role as God in the flesh, he took upon himself the sins of others. He took upon himself the burden of other people's sins. Other people who had reproached God the Father. And their sins fell on Christ. He bore a burden he didn't deserve to bear. He didn't live for his comfort. He didn't live for getting away from negative people. He lived to help others, to bear the burdens of negative people. He lived his whole life to please others. First his heavenly father, then his people, and really for all people as much as possible. This is Jesus. This is how he lived. Thank God He's done this for us. That He's taken away our sins. We are forgiven. He has loved us this much. He's borne our burden that we don't have to bear anymore. We can live forgiven and free in Jesus because He loved us so much that He bore our burdens. He took His our sins upon Himself. This is Jesus. And there's a, an aspect of Christ in His work that is unique. None of us can... can Repeat it in his atonement, paying for our sins, offering up his righteous life in our place so that we could be counted righteous and counted as a a son or daughter of the Father. There's there's a unique aspect certainly, but there's also an aspect of this that is an example to all of us. Jesus comes as the, the Savior, the only Savior, and the right Lord, but he also comes as the ultimate human being. He comes to demonstrate what humanity is supposed to look like. And it's really important to understand that, that that there's something fundamental about anthropology, the humanness, the study, the truth of, of being a human that Christ demonstrates. He is the ultimate human and he doesn't live for himself firstly. He lives for his father and he lives for others And that's how we're made. We're made to live for God, to depend on God, to draw our life from Him, and to love Him, and to love others, not to put ourselves first. And and that comes from our sinfulness, our brokenness, that we think of ourselves first. That's why it's so hard to do this. It seems so easy to please ourselves. The the effect of the fall is is that we put ourselves in God's place. We love ourselves with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then maybe we do all right with our neighbors here and there. That's our brokenness, but we're made for something way better. We're made to live in the power of the Lord in our lives. Living off of his love for us, his faithfulness, his grace, and loving him first before ourselves as he has loved us that way. It's amazing that God has loved us so much that he gave his only son for us, for you. And if you think about it, you you need to connect that reality that he loves his son infinitely. He he prizes his son and his son's goodness and obedience and faithfulness. Infinitely. He is pleased. He delights in his son. And he's known God the Son from eternity past. He's delighted in his son taking on flesh and being faithful in his righteous life. He loves his son and delights in him beyond anything we can ever imagine. And yet he's loved you so much that he exchanged the son for you. And the amazing reality that he loves us at that level. Even as he loves his own son. And so we're called to live in in something very different than how we would be naturally. Where we live in that truth. We live in in the Lord. We depend on him. And we love him that much. We love Him more than we love ourselves. And we love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what we're called to. That's what it means to be made in the image of Christ. That's what the Lord is doing in our lives. He's promised to, to work all things for our good. What is that ultimate good in, in Romans 8? Is it to have a nice, comfortable life, to have a good income, and to have all the toys we could ever want? Or is it to be conformed to the image of Christ? It's the latter. That's the ultimate good, to be made like Jesus so that you would love at that level in that way, that you would depend on the Father, you would love Him and you would love others. And so Jesus demonstrates for us what it means to be fully human and the call here, by His grace, alone, to live in this. So Paul is going to point to Jesus in this. And he's going to call us to this. So in verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and accord with Christ Jesus that together you may have, may with one voice, glorify the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's pointing to the Scriptures that have this ability to encourage us with endurance, to produce hope, to produce the unity, to bring us to that end point. So the scriptures teach us, they instruct us, they encourage us, but what do they do fundamentally? They point us to Jesus. They teach us about Jesus. And so he's quoting these scriptures to bring us encouragement, to Come alongside as we endure to build up our hope to conform us to Christ. But these scriptures speak of Jesus. They focus on Jesus and what he's done. So that we would look to Jesus and in him find our strength. Find our hope. Find the motivation towards unity. Find the ability in Jesus to die to self and live for him and for others. That's what's going on here. and we're gonna, We'll get more into some of these verses and, and under the next point. But we're called to to so connect to Jesus that we experience power and a paradigm for this life. So that's why he says there in in verse 5, this phrase, in accord with Christ Jesus. In accord with Christ Jesus. In accord with all that the Scripture teaches us about Jesus. In accord with the truth of who He is in accord with the wonder of his life given for us, in accord with Jesus. And there are three aspects of this that I think are intended, implied here that we need to understand and live in. What does it mean to be in accord with Jesus? It's, it means a vital connection to Christ. But, but how, how does that work? Is this just theology? And what is, well, like, how does it function here? There are three truths that I, I think are very important for us to get about Jesus in this aspect of us being in accord with Him, in this aspect of us finding the power and paradigm to walk this way, to love one another, first, I've already said this, can never say it enough, Christ bears our sins. Our sins against God and one another. He bears those sins on the cross. He pays the just penalty fully for those sins. The penalty is paid. He pays our debt He puts those sins away. We are forgiven. We are free. And now we have the ability in that to extend the same forgiveness to others. We're called and commanded to do that. To forgive freely as we've been forgiven. Because our sins are put away in Christ. So in accord with Christ means in accord with this reality, I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm loved. I'm safe. Jesus has done this. Second, those in Christ are joined in union with Christ. When we believe in Him, when we turn, and, and, and if you've not yet turned to Christ, it's very simple. It's not hoops you have to jump through. There's one thing you simply need to do. You need to change your orientation. Turn away from self. Turn away from sin. Say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to depend on myself anymore. It doesn't work. I know it's foolish. I've lived enough and seen enough to know. So you turn away and you turn to Christ. Christ. And in turning to Christ, you place your faith in Him. That He died in your place. He lived the righteous life you failed to live. All the things you know you ought to have done and failed to do, He never failed. He was always faithful. And His life is a substitution for us if we we put our trust in Him. His righteousness in place of our failures. He takes on our sins. Our failures are put on Him. And there's this wonderful exchange that comes as we turn to Him and just say, I believe. I receive. It's just that. Just receive. Believe and receive. And now live in that. And of course, when you connect with Christ that way, it's profound. It's way more profound than you'll know at that moment, and we'll ever know actually, but it includes this reality of our union. We're joined in union with Christ at that moment of faith. We're united with Christ. We belong to Him. We're in this union with Him that will last forever, and therefore we're in a union with each other. Because we're all united in Christ, and therefore we're united together. So to be in Christ means to be together, to be in a real unity. The ultimate, most real unity there is, is in Christ. And you are united in Christ. So first, in accord with Christ, He takes away our sin. We are reconciled to Him. We are forgiven. Second, we are in union with Him. And third, Christ's example of laying His life down for others is now a real And life-changing example because we are connected to Christ in His death. We actually died with Him. When you turn from your sin and yourself, you are actually dying to all that. To live in Jesus. And when you turn to Jesus, you are raised to new life in Jesus. Just as He was raised from the dead, He's ascended, he, He is ruling now, He will rule forever, He will return soon, and we are connected to Him in His life. And so... His example of His death is real to us because we are connected to Him. We are compelled by His example. We are conformed to His example by the power of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is His Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And they dwell in us. The Spirit dwells in us and compels us to live in this example, to live it out. There's power in Christ, in the Spirit. So when Paul says, in accord with Christ Jesus, he means all these things. And so Paul will again and again focus on Jesus. See, verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What a wonderful verse. You've been welcomed. So, turn around and welcome others just as you have been welcomed. You who are not worthy. You who are weak and limited. Welcome. This word welcome, in some of the other uh, translations, it says accept or receive. It's this idea of bringing someone into your life. Not keeping them at a distance. Welcoming them in. Bringing them in. My brother, my sister, I love being with you. I love you. Welcome them. Welcome as you've been welcomed by Christ. This experience of our welcome in Jesus empowers us to turn around and truly welcome others in the way that Paul's talking about. I hope you can see that here. I hope you understand, don't do this alone, only in Jesus. I was thinking of metaphors for this to try to illustrate it. Um, I came up with a couple. Um, one I thought of was a tandem bicycle. Anyone ever ride a tandem bicycle? Anyone have a tandem bicycle? So, uh, so a couple of us, and I see my wife's hand. We've, we rented one in Florida. We had a great time. Um, and... Uh, we just drove, drove around in Florida in this tandem bike. And, and a tandem bike is an image of our connection to Jesus. Um, and I think if you were riding a real tandem bike and you had a, you know, a race to run, I don't know if, you had that, if they used tandem bikes to do that Mount Washington race. If you were going to go up to the top of Mount Washington on a bike, I'd want to be on a tandem bike and I'd want to have the, the winner of the Tour de France on the, on the back with me, right? powering us up. And and, and that's the truth that's here in this passage, that in Jesus, in our connection with Jesus, we are on a tandem bike, we're connected to Jesus, and he's there with us. He provides the power. He's, He's promised never to leave us, never forsake us. I hope that metaphor works, but then I thought of another metaphor that maybe is more reality for you, and that is tandem skydiving. sometimes walking with Jesus is more like tandem skydiving. Um, anyone ever do this, tandem skydiving? Anyone ever skydived? Wow, cool. Some of you guys might be uh, former military too, so I know you're trained to jump out of perfectly good airplanes. Uh, but tandem skydiving. And in tandem skydiving, uh, the idea is that you have a professional who you're strapped to, hopefully very tightly, and, um, and they jump out of the plane with you uh, I, had a lot of, I had a lot of fun actually looking at the videos of tandem skydiving. And I'm no better, actually. Uh, I would be worse. I wouldn't do it, actually. I, I just couldn't do it. But, but the picture here is being connected to someone who knows what they're doing. And the experience is, even though you might scream and faint, even though your eyes might roll back in your head on the way down, you do reach the bottom safely because you have a professional strapped to you No matter what you do, really, you can't get away. And you make it safely down in this. And this is a picture of what life feels like sometimes in Jesus, right? And we might freak out, but the reality is we're strapped to Him. Through the miracle of faith, that's a gift from Him. We're connected to Him. And it may feel awful. We may be screaming, fainting, eyes rolling back, but Jesus will get us down to the ground safely. And so this call To love each other, to die to self, to put others first can feel like skydiving. But take heart. Jesus has already done it. And he is with you. And he will get you through. Finally, unity means a stronger hope. I hope you've seen in this passage what's going on. That that Paul mentions hope a number of times and yet he's talking about unity. And so the question is what's the connection? I don't get it. And I I, of course, started out with the starting illustration to, to make the connection clear. Paul wants them to be strengthened in unity because this will affect their hope. It will strengthen their hope because they'll realize this isn't just theory. It's real. It's happening. We need that. We need to experience a, a part of what is ahead. And so we see through all this that he is, he's connecting these things, unity and hope. And so he does that. I just, a couple of places... To to point to help make that clear, verses 4 and then verses 5 through 6, Paul says the same thing twice, yet slightly differently. And I think this points to this uh, truth that hope and unity are connected. He says in verse 4, I think they have this to show, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. First sentence. Second sentence, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These sentences are very similar. I think I have the next slide shows the logic laid out. Verse 4 says, basically, through the encouragement of scriptures. So the scriptures there, scripture leads to encouragement with endurance, and that produces hope. And then the second one, he says, may the God of encouragement and endurance, in accord with Christ, Create unity, that with one voice you may glorify the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, leads to, produces encouragement and endurance in our lives, to produce unity. And so unity and hope are put on parallel in, in this section. And that's actually done throughout. The promises about Jesus are promises of Jesus, actually. If you look through all those different promises, they're all about Jesus bringing Gentiles and Jews together. That with one voice they would glorify God. That the Gentiles would put their hope in Christ. That their, their hope, what they look forward to, would be living in God. And glorifying God and enjoying heaven together. And so what he's saying, what Paul is saying, is Jesus has come to make this, this a reality. To create true unity from Jews and Gentiles. Bringing them together in the gospel, in the good news. And create one people who will glorify God enjoy God forever in worship. That's the substance of our hope, right? What we're looking forward to ultimately is full redemption, the reconciliation of all things where we are now with the Lord and with all of his people together enjoying God forever. That's the substance of our hope. And yet Paul is talking about the present unity they're called to because he realizes it's not just a future thing. It's got to be a present experience as well. That strengthens our hope. We realize, wow, this is real. And our hope gets demonstrated. And this is such an important aspect of the Christian life for us. It's important that we understand that there's an already and the not yet. That the church is, is the place where God wants to put the already on display. It's not yet. It won't be perfect. It won't be final. But it is going to be real. It's meant to be real. There's meant to be this sort of love in, among God's people. That's why Jesus says, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's going to be on display. People are going to see it. There's a difference here. These people don't, they wouldn't actually be together. Why are they together? And not only are they together, but they actually enjoy each other. They love each other. They love being with each other. They've learned to to accommodate those differences, to even appreciate those differences, to walk in unity together. That's what he calls us to. That's the reality here. That's what you and I are called to as well. I uh, love taking classes that give you actual experiences in learning the topic, uh, classes that have labs and workshops. And by the way, we're hoping to run our New Testament Prophecy class again, that's a workshop-based class to learn how to experience and serve others with that gift. Um, I remember taking shop in junior and senior high school and we didn't just read about how to make furniture, we did it. We didn't just read about how to safely use band saws and table saws, sanders and drill presses, we did it. And we made stuff. And my parents actually still have some of the stuff that I made way back then. God wants the same with us. He's put us in a workshop called The Local Church, Family, Relationships. And he wants to make heaven real in a substantial way among us. He's put us here and and he's put that brother or sister who's different from you next to you for good purpose. That you might learn to love like Christ does. You might learn the value of the gospel more poignantly and powerfully that you might walk out what love looks like along that long, hard road of relationship, depending on Christ and growing in Christlikeness. So as I close here, let me ask, you're in the workshop already, and he's already put the things around you that he wants to work on. Who is that person you need to bear with? How can you change how you see them and treat them in light of today's message? How can you hang on to Jesus better? Don't do this on your own. And practically, how does that work? How does it look like to keep Jesus in the next seat? How does it, what does it look like to stay strapped to Jesus? Now well, he keeps us. We need to understand that's the most important thing. But he uses means. He uses ways to keep us connected. The local church, regular worship, hearing the word. Experiencing taking communion. Being around others who are looking to stay close to Jesus. Getting in his word and praying. These are all among the multiple means that he uses to keep us close. So is there one of those things you need to do? Or do better? Or maybe you need to ask others, teach me how to do this. I want to stay connected to Jesus. How do you need to stay more connected to Jesus? Because don't do this on your own. Connect to Jesus. Get in the lab. Start working on it he'll be with you. So let's just take a minute before we transition to communion and pray about that one workshop goal that the Lord might have for you. Ask him for power. Ask him to forgive you for failing there, but to receive his love and his forgiveness. And Ask him to strengthen you. We'll do that, and Pastor Toby will come to transition us to communion.